Moms are great. Mother's Day is a nightmare. With the world beginning to reopen, this may be our busiest Mother's Day yet. Yelp for Restaurants is here to help you execute a flawless service. Contactless table management, reservation management, and digital waitlisting tools ensure your diners don't have to wait around in long lines in an era of social distancing. Empower your guests to add themselves to your digital waitlist before they even leave home. Provide accurate wait times and automatically notify them right before their table is ready. Let's get back to business better than ever. Listeners of this podcast get three months of free access to waitlist and $300 of free monthly advertising credits. Visit restaurants.yelp.com forward slash Mother's Day to learn more. Now here we go. Those are the best concepts where it's so original. You're not copying anything and you're fulfilling a need that people don't even realize they have. When you can pull that off, then wow, you've got something really enduring and sustainable and something that can really grow and scale. Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the hospitality industry, featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators, served up on the house. I'm obsessed with massive growth. Though I had no desire to own dozens of restaurants, I think there's a ton to be learned from the folks that do. Randy DeWitt is a scaling mastermind. From a single cafe, he launched an empire that includes Twin Peaks, Velvet Taco, and countless other national brands. Today, Randy shares the essential elements that have enabled him to create hit after hit. I think like a lot of people, you just have an itch and you feel a need to scratch it. And for me, I worked my way through college in my early working years in restaurants and just loved it. I had a blast. I often quoted or reminded that I've said being a bartender as a college student was the best job I've ever had. It gave me a social life, gave me an income got to meet a lot of girls. It was just one of the best times of my life as I look back. And of course, I didn't follow up on that and go into the restaurant business. I uh, joined the Air Force, traveled around the world, came back, decided upon advice from friends, family, and others in my life that being a restaurant manager was a terrible way to make a living. So I went into commercial real estate. And I did fairly well. And after eight years, the shopping centers that I had worked on were all sold in one transaction. I got a little check and a ham sandwich and a roadmap. And basically, (laughs) on my motorcycle, I went to go find myself uh, in my early 30s. And I felt that itch again. And I thought, this is just not going to go away. I really have the means now to open up a restaurant, a small cafe anyway. And I rode my motorcycle back to Dallas, Texas, where I grew up and started nosing around, knocking on doors, who wants to sell their restaurant? And I found a little cafe over by Southern Methodist University and opened up a coffee bar and promptly started to go broke. And after a year, shut it down and remodeled it with the last of my funds and reopened as an oyster bar and grill, uh, put in a bar that helped the profitability and it took off. So just never looked back. And that became what, over half a dozen concepts, 25 plus locations? Half a dozen, Josh, more like 
over a dozen. Over a dozen at this point. Yeah. We haven't kept them all. I've sold restaurants and restaurant concepts and things over the years. And today, what do we operate now? Whiskey Cake, 60 Vines, I Declare, Mexican Sugar, Haywire, The Ranch, Velvet Taco. I'm still kind of involved in Twin Peaks. We sold the company a few years back, but I'm on the board and still have a small investment. We have the Food Hall, Legacy Hall, where we're just now, right now, opening in downtown Nashville, the largest food hall in North America. First phase is already open. Second phase comes up in May. And a lot of the concepts inside the food hall that are food stalls are ours as well, but not all of them by any means. It begs the question, how? Like, how do you go from one to that? I mean, forgetting money entirely. Like, was that a plan or was that simply a vision? Do you see what I'm saying? Like, how do you bridge the gap? Josh, I'm often approached by young people who look at my career and say, I want to do that. I want to be you. And I immediately try to dissuade them (laughs) and say, no, you don't really want to do that. And I think if you just focus on what you're good at and surround yourself with people who are complementary to that and share your vision, you can do almost anything. I mean, that's the core of any entrepreneur, really. I mean, I realized pretty early in my restaurant career that day-to-day operations, sticking with one concept was not going to be a fulfilling career for me. So, you know, I just really sized myself up and said, you know what I'm good at is I'm good at being visionary. I'm good at seeing opportunity where others don't. And I created a process that we still use today when we create new brands. And I think it's that important intersection of creativity and being visionary, understanding the marketplace, understanding the consumer and what they want. They might not even realize they want it. Those are the best concepts where it's so original. You're not copying anything and you're fulfilling a need that people don't even realize they have. When you can pull that off, then, wow, you've got something really enduring and sustainable and something that can really grow and scale. Speaking broadly on a high level, what does that brand creation process look like? Well, I actually have an outline of it and <laughs> you know, still use it almost every day. What stage of the process are you in? Um, I keep asking some of my team as I try to develop other people now to kind of carry the torch. Because one of the things I realized a few years ago was that this company could die with me, or I could just sell the whole thing to a strategic investor, owner, a big chain. We've been approached many times over the years to be acquired, but I didn't want that for myself or certainly for the people who have joined Frontburner Restaurants, now called FB Society. So I gathered up my top team members and said, how do we make this sustainable? How do we keep this going even when I want to retire or someday I'm just not going to be here? None of us are going to be around forever, right? But sometimes a company can. Companies can live beyond the original founder. And how do we do that? So we designed a process to enable that to happen. and. The rebranding of the company is sort of an example of why we did it and why we changed the name slightly. Let's talk about that. So 
the transition from front burner to FB society, is that an ideological transition or is that a practical transition or is it both? It's both. Ideologically, we realized that we were beyond restaurants. We had built probably the most interesting and exciting food hall at Legacy West here in the Dallas-Fort Worth market. It combines a food hall with entertainment and a brewery on site and seven bars and it's just rocking and rolling. It's exciting and fun and a lot of developers are asking for it. So we did our second one in downtown Nashville. We're trying to put together a pipeline to keep growing that. Along the way, we've made a lot of real estate investments. Restaurants are good users of real estate and when it's possible, it's beneficial to own that real estate too. So we started buying our own real estate pretty early on. Not always, but when it's available, you have to be opportunistic about it. But then we were asked by other real estate investors, would you partner with us in this project, even if you don't put one of your own restaurants in it? So we have real estate investments. We have a catering company now. We call that whole division front burner experiences because they go beyond just normal catering. We didn't want to just compete with every other caterer in town. So we provide experiences above and beyond what the normal catering company would offer. So we thought, how do we wrap all that together under one umbrella? Calling it Front Burner Restaurants just seems too confining and limiting. So we changed the name to Front Burner Society. When you look at what you've achieved, what do you think you did well, exceptionally well? What are the lessons that you take into your day-to-day that you think independent restaurateurs could learn from? I will tell you exactly what I did. And it's the hardest thing for most business people, most leaders, most managers certainly to do. And it's one simple thing, Josh. You simply hire people who are smarter and better at the job than you are. And if you can do that, you will be successful. Just think, we have, I don't know, seven, 8,000 employees. If everybody behaved the way normal managers behave, which is they hire someone that they can teach and train and develop, and they want to be the smartest person in the room, so they don't hire people who are smarter and better than them because they feel threatened and challenged by those people. So over and over, as every organization is a bit of a pyramid, right? We all want it to be as flat as possible, but it's a pyramid. And so on down the line, every hiring manager, hiring someone who's dumber and less competent than they are, creates a giant, dumb organization. And you can't let that happen. You can simply do the opposite and you'll have a really smart group. I'm often inspired by the acts of Stephen Jobs at Apple, right? And he's famously quoted for saying they hire smart people so they can tell them what to do. They don't hire smart people and try to tell the smart people what to do. Flip it on. And so that's what I've done. It just came natural to me because I wasn't all that bright to begin with. So have they all been bangers? Have you had some failures along the way? Absolutely. Like I said, my very first concept was a coffee bar cafe with a health food menu in Dallas, Texas in 1994. This town wasn't ready for free trade coffee, egg white breakfast tacos. It was very clean food. And I was just way ahead of my time. I was ahead of the consumer. 
after a year, I closed that one down, kept the lease, remodeled into a kind of a Gulf Coast oyster bar. That restaurant's still there today. So I'm very proud of that. Right on. Any other big lessons that you've learned along the way from setbacks or obstacles that you encountered? Yeah, I mean, no one ever gets there by themselves, right? So my wife's a big tennis player, and she likes to be on a team where there are players that are better than her. It raises her game. So pretty early in the startup of the company, I formed an advisory board. And one of my advisors told me one time, because I was hiring a real estate attorney and I was interviewing different people, and I said, this person will do it for a very inexpensive flat fee. And his advice to me was, well, what's their experience? And I said, well, they're fresh out of law school. And he said, well, if you think an expert is expensive, wait till you try an amateur. So, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I hired the amateur anyway and uh, ended up with a pretty bad lease document and learned a good lesson. So I would like to share that, you know, in things that are completely out of your league, usually for the restaurateur startup entrepreneur. It's accounting, maybe legal, could be branding, things like that. Go get an expert and spend the money. If you don't have it, don't do the deal. Wait until you're capitalized enough to really pull off what you want to do. I think that's a really big lesson. And I think it's been a really big struggle for so many of us is I've never opened a restaurant concept with a dollar in the bank by the time we opened. And it's, you can get through it. We always did. But it makes the first year almost impossible. It makes the second year painful. It's so much easier to start well-capitalized or at least shrink the scale of the project to adjust for however much money you have. I think that was one of the real big aha moments for so many independent restaurateurs coming out of the pandemic. Yeah, most of our new concepts start out with a very low capitalization and opportunity. And it's usually a second-gen restaurant that already has the look and feel and the right location for the new brand that we want to create. So we have to do some minor fixing and adjusting, certainly new decor and signage and things like that. But spending a lot of money on a brand new idea is not often the best idea either. But the right amount of capital in the right situation can really help you be successful. And if it's a new concept, stay away from debt. You just don't need that pressure. Your lease is like debt anyway. Your payroll is like debt anyway. You don't need to pay a bank on top of it. Absolutely. And I think it leads into the next question, which is I want to talk to you about food halls. I know you guys are heavily invested in the concept. And I think nationally, we've seen food halls that have been hugely successful and others that have been massive failures along the way. I know you're bullish on the concept and you use it as an incubator. And my question is, ultimately, so I had a restaurant in a food hall concept and I found it really difficult to prove our proof of concept in it. It was busy, but it's hard to tell chicken or the egg. Is it because we're located in a food hall? Uh, does the concept have merits on its own? As someone that's both invested in food halls as an owner operator, but then also is using it as an incubator, how do you make that work? Well, I share your idea that it's not a proof of concept. Being in a food hall that generates its own traffic 
it's more important to not know not just are you financially successful operating that, but what share of the pie are you getting? I think that's much more indicative than are you making a profit? So we have access to all that data in our food hall. We willingly share it with all the other food stall operators if they ask for it. But I mean, that's the really big indicator for us. So when we open up a new concept inside our legacy hall, food hall, we want to see it move the needle and grab more market share by just having the right offering. That That's a good indication. But still, it just doesn't tell you what's going to happen once you go outside that food hall. We've recently done that with a concept. We have a burger concept called Son of a Butcher. It's uh, Texas Wagyu beef sliders, little small ones. So you eat two, sometimes three to put together a meal. Um, They have wildly different flavors. Some are actually chicken. We have pork now and beef, of course, and then a veggie one. And so we opened, it was so successful, we we opened one out on uh, Greenville Avenue in Dallas, kind of a bar and restaurant strip that's really popular. And we were delighted. It opened up really strong. And it's definitely showing us that we have a growth vehicle. But I wouldn't have launched and signed two or three leases at once based on the results from the food hall. But now that we see it out on the street by itself, we're bullish on it and we're going to grow it. Working in the restaurant industry, there's always been plenty to worry about. And over the last year, cleanliness has been front and center in our minds and in the minds of our guests. Your world-class team and world-class patrons deserve world-class protection. Microband 24 Professional kills 99% of viruses and bacteria. It doesn't just sanitize and stop. It keeps killing bacteria for 24 hours, even when the surfaces in your restaurant are touched multiple times. And the EPA has approved Microband 24 Sanitizing Spray is effective at killing the virus that causes COVID-19. So you can achieve your most confident clean, touch after touch. I think for a lot of independent restaurateurs, especially the ones with a limited budget or the guys that are just trying to grow out of their food truck into something a bit more physical, that they see food halls as a great option. In my experience, it can also be a great trap, right? If it's the wrong food hall or the wrong food hall operator, it can be a really bad situation. I know you guys do a great job. And for the folks listening, can you define what you would look for as an independent restaurateur in a food hall? What would make for a great relationship? Traffic, traffic, traffic. So we didn't want to rely on our food hall to be with just food, to be enough of an attraction. So we have a live music venue adjacent to it. There's a brewery on the third floor. It's in the best shopping center in far north Dallas, uh, Plano. Legacy West is by far the most successful retail development up there. So we didn't take many chances with where we located the food hall and how we programmed the space and creating all that extra traffic. So if your food concept doesn't work in our food hall, it's likely not going to work anywhere. Got it. I'm going to quote you. You said, while so many brands were forced to retract or even shut down during the crisis, we made a decision that FrontBurner would not only survive, but emerge smarter, stronger, and more cohesive. Optimism is certainly not a rarity when it comes to entrepreneurs. And 
almost blind optimism is a common quality of most restaurateurs. But you made that statement in light of furloughing like 4,000 people. And I'm just curious as a leader, like how were you able to maintain that level of optimism during such a dark period? Uh, I think you're right. Unrestrained optimism is something I possess. And it's certainly common in entrepreneurs and especially those in the restaurant business in this business, because it is a very difficult business to succeed in. So that's me. That's just who I am. But this pandemic, my God, what an emotional roller coaster it was for all of us. I mean, I remember that week a year ago, furloughing thousands of people. There was no PPP or government programs at all existing. No one knew what was going to happen. And we did what we had to do to survive, just like all of us had to do, or the smart ones did, took early action. But then as soon as that light at the end of the tunnel became bright enough to see, I mean, I just switched back into the mode I'm most comfortable in, and that's growth and optimism. And when life gives you lemons, you make lemonade. Who was it? Winston Churchill, I think, said, never let a good crisis go to waste. So we were having our almost daily meetings in our conference room, sitting six feet apart, wearing masks. But our key leadership team still met every day and figured out what our future was going to be. And as soon as we got the restaurants reopened and set up with to-go drive throughs I can remember sending my wife out with a company credit card. And I said, go buy every orange traffic cone you can find in the city. So she went to every, every Home Depot, Lowe's, anybody who had anything like that. And we created these makeshift drive throughs in our parking lots. And we had some restaurants that were approaching prior year sales on drive through only selling meal kits. I mean, just turning them into little grocery stores almost, you know, and the customers were loving it. We didn't let go of our marketing people. They stayed and we just got hyperactive on social media, telling people what we were doing and it was working. And I just felt the energy in the company was so strong that we'd lived through a couple other recessions already as a company. And I knew it wasn't going to last. And what you need to do is prepare yourself for growth when there's a downturn, because the best growth we've done historically has been during recessions. That's when good real estate's available. And even more importantly, that's when good people are available. So we made a few key changes to the leadership teams, got great people who were willing to make a change during that time. And we emerged stronger. I mean, it's we're not out of the woods yet, but here in Texas, I think we're leading the country in terms of recovery and getting back to work. I just looked at last week's sales this morning, and it's really back to normal for us already. That's incredible. Another one of the things that came out of the pandemic was furlough kitchen. Can you talk to me about what that concept was and how it was executed? Yeah. So at the end of the very first week, where I think by Wednesday, we had made the decision, we have to furlough virtually all of our hourly employees. There's just no way we can try to keep people on payroll. And that was heartbreaking. And so Friday night, after 
the end of the first week, our leadership team decided we needed a drink. So we went to our restaurant, Haywire, which has the best selection of whiskey. And it was closed, of course. And we sat around in the bar wearing our masks six feet apart. Everybody got up and made their own cocktail. And we went around kind of in a circle. And I asked everybody, you're running whiskey cake. Share with us the good, the bad, and the ugly and where you're at as of Friday on the first week of the shutdown. And then it was 60 vines. And then it was, I declare. And then it was, and the last person that spoke was our catering president. And he said, well, all the events canceled. There's no new events in sight. So I furloughed everybody except myself and all the leadership team decided we weren't going to take a paycheck until we saw we were going to survive. So everyone was working for free with a C-level title. And so I said, Jordan, that's just unacceptable. I mean, we've kept managers in the other restaurants and we've switched to drive throughs And he goes, well, the catering kitchen's in a place where it's just not going to work. There's no possibility customers are going to come by. And I just said, you know what? We're going to have to do something. Let's reopen. We just went to our core values, Josh. And I said, look, you know, Front Burner stands for people first. And within that, our own people are the most important to us. The next is our industry. And after that is our community. So we've already done as much as we can for our people, keeping the restaurants open. We didn't furlough managers. We kept one or two hourly employees per restaurant to work drive throughs The catering people, my partner, Jack Emmons, and I have donor advised funds with our financial advisors. And so we redirected some money out of that to prop up this charity called Furlough Kitchen. And we reopened the catering kitchen on Wednesday of the following week as Furlough Kitchen. And it was fun because we made the decision that first Friday night, Saturday morning, our marketing people have two daughters in college that are marketing students. So we said, come home. You need to work on this with our marketing folks. And they created Furlough Kitchen, branded it, signage, procedures. Jack and I funded the initial startup of it. But then we had vendors and suppliers and prominent people in our community step up and say, I want to support this too. We were feeding a thousand people a day for 90 days. That was our goal. We made it. And it was just one of the most proud moments I've had during the pandemic. It's absolutely incredible and totally worth highlighting. And I'm curious, as you look to the future and you look at the rest of 2021, 2022, as a visionary, what opportunities do you see out there for yourself, your company, and for the industry at large? I mean, for me, you know, I'm 62. My wife is super interested in travel and wine and spending more time with me. So, you know, I promoted Jack to CEO of the company during the pandemic. I don't go into the office every day and I'm just passing the reins and trying to stay involved and work on projects that are exciting to me. I do have a new concept I'm playing with right now. It's going to debut in the food hall about three weeks from now, and we'll see where it goes. But what opportunities do I see for me is 
I think it's helping other people. About five years ago, I joined the board of Chewy's Tex-Mex. I just have a real soft spot for that brand. I met my wife there about 30 years ago. (laughs) And I've really enjoyed serving on another restaurant company's board. And I'll probably do some more of that. Over the last five or six years, we've reorganized our company so that when brands like Velvet Taco show such a promising future and they need to attract capital and we need to build a leadership team that can grow and scale it. We've done that a couple of times successfully. So there's a bit of a process and pattern we follow in doing that. And so I stay active on their board and I'm on the board of Twin Peaks still. I'm on the board of Whiskey Cake and 60 Vines. We have individual CEOs running those two brands. And so it's really just being a coach and helping those people, finding out what they need to be successful and try to shore that up and fill the gaps. And then for the company and for the industry, for the independent restaurateurs listening, where do you see opportunities for them in this new landscape? Gosh, Josh, it's just everywhere. I mean, look, what this country doesn't need is another restaurant, right? I mean, we're covered up with restaurants. Even though the herd has been thinned quite a bit by this pandemic, we have so much choice as consumers. We don't need just another restaurant, but there's always a need for something new that's different and relevant to a consumer who feels underserved. And there's just always a niche for that. And that's why when we go through our concept development process, I just won't let something get out. We won't produce something or open something that's a me too concept. It has to be differentiated in a meaningful way to a target customer who doesn't feel served. That need will always exist. It's an industry podcast. And at the end of every episode, I like to give the guests an opportunity to speak directly to the audience. Do you have any advice or words of encouragement you would like to share? I think I already mentioned higher smarter than you are. That's a no-brainer. Recognize that everything rises and falls upon leadership. Large companies decline because of the poor leadership. Small companies grow because they have good leadership. So insist upon it. If you're the owner, insist upon high-quality leadership. Know your core values. Stick to them, even in the toughest of times. If you're a restaurant owner, Understand what your brand DNA is. That's a big concept in our company. Every brand has a DNA. We work really hard on producing a document called the brand DNA document. It's used for every employee's orientation. That's day one. The very first thing they do when you're hired and training begins is review the brand DNA. And then once you know your brand DNA, stick with it. Don't change it unless it's broken. It's kind of like the Constitution for us. You know, it could be amended, but it takes an act of Congress. When you're just making decisions day to day, and it's something especially that affects the guest or the employee experience, use your brand DNA document as a filter. Is this the right thing to do? If it connects with two points in the brand DNA and doesn't conflict with any of them, it could be the right decision. If you find conflicts, don't do it. That's Randy DeWitt. For more on FB Society, go to fb-society.com. 
If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, or check out our other content, go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Kopel. You've been listening to Full Comp.